This is an annotated version of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Fireside Chat from December 1940, the famous Arsenal of Democracy speech. It is my intention to try to put this speech into context and to intersperse between various sections of the speech spoken by Franklin D. Roosevelt himself the context in which he was speaking. I'm going to try to explain why he emphasizes the points he does emphasize and how it helped him lead the nation through the isolationist period before America entered the Second World War. America entered World War II on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. This speech was delivered one year before that time, when America was neutral in the Second World War, which had begun when the Nazis attacked Poland on September 1, 1939. At the time that Roosevelt speaks in this Arsenal of Democracy speech, the vast majority of Americans opposed a declaration of war on Germany, even though England was fighting for its very life against Germany at this moment. Remember that in December 1940, Western Europe had completely fallen to the Nazis. The French had been knocked out of the war in just six weeks between May and June of that very year, 1940. And the Battle of Britain was still going on, in which the Nazis were trying to bomb the British to submission. The Nazis had put on ice a plan to invade Britain, known as Operation Sea Lion, but they were trying to accomplish by air power what they could not accomplish by a full-scale invasion. At this time, the Soviet Union had embraced the Nazis in a non-aggression pact, so the British could not hope to survive by looking to the Russians, since they were in an embrace with the Nazis. The United States was Britain's only hope at this time. But again, the vast majority of Americans were isolationist, and so Roosevelt had to walk very carefully. He wanted to get the American people to support a policy that would later become known as Lend-Lease, in which the United States would lend as much material hardware and weaponry as the United States could possibly spare to the British, so that the British would do the American people's fighting for them. And in this way, Roosevelt was going to try to argue that war could be pushed farther from American shores in this way than by letting the British go down to defeat and therefore standing alone before the Nazis, who were in a non-aggression pact, after all, with the Soviet Union. So the whole thrust of this speech is that America could delay war more by helping the British, even though many Americans believed, A, we should not be frittering away our scarce munitions resources by giving them to the British, and B, that by sending them to the British, there was a chance 
that American ships would be sunk by Nazi submarines, thus dragging America into a war that the vast majority of Americans wanted no part in. So Roosevelt had to walk a tightrope. And the other thing that's interesting about this speech is that you see a president who is trying to lead a reluctant nation to save the democratic system. Here was a time when a president did not consider, wow, that Hitler is really authoritarian, and wouldn't it be nice if I was authoritarian like him? I speak in a way that sounds glib, but in recent times we've seen American leadership that seems more akin to that kind of absurdity than what we see in this speech an American president speaking up for America's national security interests as well as for the democratic way of life. And so let's begin by listening to this pivotal fireside chat by Franklin Roosevelt, the Arsenal of Democracy speech. My friends, this is not a fireside chat on war. It is a talk on national security because the nub of the whole purpose of your president is to keep you now and your children later and your grandchildren much later out of a last ditch war for the preservation of American independence and all of the things that American independence means to you and to me and to ours. Tonight, in the presence of a world crisis, my mind goes back eight years to a night in the midst of a domestic crisis. It was a time when the wheels of American industry were grinding to a full stop, when the whole banking system of our country had ceased to function. I well remember that while I sat in my study in the White House, Preparing to talk with the people of the United States, I had before my eyes the picture of all those Americans with whom I was talking. I saw the workmen in the mills, the mines, the factories, the girl behind the counter, the small shopkeeper, the farmer doing his spring plowing, the widows and the old men, wondering about their life's savings. I tried to convey to the great mass of American people what the banking crisis meant to them in their daily lives. Tonight, I want to do the same thing with the same people in this new crisis which faces America. Here, Roosevelt is trying to reawaken the magic of his very first fireside chat in March 1933 when he spoke on the banking crisis. At that time, the banking system was in a state of collapse because of the panic of nervous investors, ordinary people who had invested their life savings in banks. The fireside chat, the very first one on the banking crisis, rallied the nation and the nation got through the banking crisis in no small part because of Roosevelt's speech in which he reassured Americans in an hour of great fear 
and he tried and he was trying here to remind Americans that the crisis they faced today was no less severe but at the same time that they could get through it with the same kind of unity never before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has our American civilization been in such danger as now for on September 27th 1940, this year, by an agreement signed in Berlin, three powerful nations, two in Europe and one in Asia, joined themselves together in the threat that if the United States of America interfered with or blocked the expansion program of these three nations, a program aimed at world control, they would unite in ultimate action against the United States. Here FDR is referring to the tripartite pact between Germany, Italy, and Japan, signed in September 1940. He's educating the American people to the vital national security interests of the United States and how world events abroad were threatening those interests. Here again, it's not just a question of wanting to resist the Nazis, but needing to resist the Nazis as a vital interest of the United States. The Nazi masters of Germany have made it clear that they intend not only to dominate all life and thought in their own country, but also to enslave the whole of Europe and then to use the resources of Europe to dominate the rest of the world. It was only three weeks ago that their leader stated this, there are two worlds that stand opposed to each other. And then in defiant reply to his opponents, he said this, others are correct when they say, with this world, we cannot ever reconcile ourselves. I can beat any other power in the world, so said the leader of the Nazis. In other words, the Axis not merely admits, but the Axis proclaims that there can be no ultimate peace between their philosophy their philosophy of government and our philosophy of government. In view of the nature of this undeniable threat, it can be asserted properly and categorically that the United States has no right or reason to encourage talk of peace until the day shall come when there is a clear intention on the part of the aggressor nations to abandon all thought of dominating or conquering the world. So what is striking here is how deliberately unneutral this speech is, designedly so, and that's part of its brilliance. Roosevelt was trying to remind the American people that their basic national security interests were at stake, but also their highest philosophical ideals and everything that the nation stood for, including its democratic way of life, 
was threatened by the Nazis. Just two days after the World War began, on September 1, 1939, Roosevelt reminded Americans of a statement made by Woodrow Wilson in the previous World War, when the United States was also neutral for a time, Wilson said he expected Americans to be neutral in thought as well as in deed. Roosevelt did not say that. He said, I cannot ask Americans to be neutral in thought as well as in deed, because he wanted to remind Americans that the Nazis were against every principle a democratic government was standing for. And therefore, this is another example of Roosevelt doing that here and preparing Americans for aid to the Allies short of war as a means of staying out of the war, but also as a means of protecting America's most vital national security interests. At this moment, the forces of the states that are leagued against all peoples who live in freedom are being held away from our shores. The Germans and the Italians are being blocked on the other side of the Atlantic by the British and by the Greeks and by thousands of soldiers and sailors who are able to escape from subjugated countries. In Asia, the Japanese are being engaged by the Chinese nation in another great defense. In the Pacific Ocean is our fleet. Some of our people like to believe that wars in Europe and in Asia are of no concern to us, but it is a matter of most vital concern to us that European and Asiatic war makers should not gain control of the oceans which lead to this hemisphere. 117 years ago, the Monroe Doctrine was conceived by our government as a measure of defense in the face of a threat against this hemisphere by an alliance in continental Europe. Thereafter, we stood guard in the Atlantic with the British as neighbors. There was no treaty. There was no unwritten agreement. And yet, there was the feeling proven correct by history that we as neighbors could settle any disputes in peaceful fashion. And the fact is that during the whole of this time, the Western Hemisphere has remained free from aggression from Europe or from Asia. Does anyone seriously believe that we need to fear attack Anywhere in the Americas, while a free Britain remains our most powerful naval neighbor in the Atlantic? And does anyone seriously believe, on the other hand, that we could rest easy if the Axis powers were our neighbors there? After this history lesson, Roosevelt pulls out all the stops. He reminds Americans that Britain is fighting alone against the Nazis. And he tells the American people what they can expect if the Nazis won against England. It's a very, very dark and grim passage. 
but it's designed to wake Americans up to the danger posed by Nazi Germany. Roosevelt is going as far as he can to lead Americans into a posture where they would support Lend-Lease to the Allies fighting the Nazis. By the United States, a neutral power, the United States would loan or lease, but really give, unlimited amounts of arms to any nations fighting the aggressor nations, that is, Italy and Germany, deemed vital to the national security interests of the United States. This was going to be a tough effort by Roosevelt, but he was going to win in March of 1941, just a few months later, when the Lend-Lease Bill passed, and Roosevelt emerged triumphant in his effort to help the British survive against the Nazis, even though America was technically neutral. An effort to help the Allies without losing the support of the American people. The reason this was so difficult was because Americans remembered the First World War. They remembered the Lusitania, when a German attack on an unarmed vessel nearly brought the United States into the First World War. And Americans thought, why are we sending our weapons to other countries? We may need them ourselves. So this was a tough sell by Roosevelt, but a tough sell that he won. If Great Britain goes down, the Axis powers will control the continents of Europe, Asia, Africa, Australasia, and the high seas. And they will be in a position to bring enormous military and naval resources against this hemisphere. It is no exaggeration to say that all of us in all the Americas would be living at the point of a gun, a gun loaded with explosive bullets, economic as well as military. We should enter upon a new and terrible era in which the whole world, our hemisphere included, would be run by threats of brute force. And to survive in such a world, we would have to convert ourselves permanently into a militaristic power on the basis of war economy. Of course, as a parenthetic aside, the global ascendance of the Soviet Union and the United States as superpowers led to just such an event in the Cold War, in which the United States had a permanent war economy and a permanent militarization of that economy. But it was just one of the anticipated consequences and necessary consequences of the global threat posed by Hitler and a Hitler world. Some of us like to believe that even if Britain falls, we are still safe because of the broad expanse of the Atlantic and of the Pacific. But the width of those oceans is not what it was in the days of clipper ships. At one point between Africa and Brazil, the distance is less from Washington than it is from Washington to Denver, Colorado. Five hours for the latest type of bomber. And at the north end of the Pacific Ocean, 
America and Asia almost touch each other. Why, even today, we have planes that could fly from the British Isles to New England and back again without refueling. And remember that the range of the modern bomber is ever being increased. During the past week, many people in all parts of the nation have told me what they wanted me to say tonight. Almost all of them expressed a courageous desire to hear the plain truth about the gravity of the situation. One telegram, however, expressed the attitude of the small minority who want to see no evil and hear no evil, even though they know in their hearts that evil exists. That telegram begged me not to tell again of the ease with which our American cities could be bombed by any hostile power which had gained bases in this Western Hemisphere. The gist of that telegram was, please, Mr. President, don't frighten us by telling us the facts. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. The isolationists were outraged by Roosevelt's tactics, by his sarcasm. But it must be remembered that the Middle West and other parts of the country were solidly controlled by isolationist senators and isolationist public opinion. The United States had a history of isolationism going back to the War of 1812. Not since the war had America been involved in the rest of the world, with the exception of the First World War, which had a very bad memory to many Americans. So Roosevelt had to be direct, even confrontational, in his efforts to weaken American isolationism. And so he was in this speech. And so he was as his speech continues. <clears throat> but we well know that we cannot escape danger or the fear of danger by crawling into bed and pulling the covers over our heads. Some nations of Europe were bound by solemn non-intervention pacts with Germany. Other nations were assured by Germany that they need never fear invasion, non-intervention pact or not. The fact remains that they were attacked overrun, thrown into modern slavery at an hour's notice, or even without any notice at all. The plain facts are that the Nazis have proclaimed time and again that all other races are their inferiors and therefore subject to their orders. And most important of all, the vast resources and wealth of this American hemisphere constitute the most tempting loot in all of the round world. Let us no longer blind ourselves to the undeniable fact that the evil forces which have crushed and undermined and corrupted so many others are already within our own gates. Your government knows much about them 
and every day is ferreting them out. Their secret emissaries are active in our own and in neighboring countries. They seek to stir up suspicion and dissension to cause internal strife. They try to turn capital against labor and vice versa. They try to reawaken long slumbering racial and religious enmities which should have no place in this country. They are active in every group that promotes intolerance. They exploit for their own ends our own natural abhorrence of war. Here the complex context of this speech is apparent in two examples. First, Roosevelt's fear of foreign subversion was going to have a most unfortunate effect on American immigration policy as the United States threw up the walls against Jewish immigration and refugee immigration to the United States during the Second World War for fear that somehow the Nazis would sneak subversives in among the immigrants. And so the refugees from what we now call the Holocaust were going to be inhibited from entering the United States because of this fear of foreign subversion. On the other hand, you also see Roosevelt being concerned with the domestic implications of Nazi racism and the fear that Americans might be divided on racial grounds because of the Nazi threat or because of Nazi subversion. And in 1941, the United States under Roosevelt would issue an executive order which commanded that domestic industry for war production must not be segregated on the basis of race. This order by Roosevelt in June of 1941 would be mostly honored in the breach as discrimination continued, but it is considered the first federal action against racial segregation since Reconstruction. There are also American citizens, many of them in high places, who unwittingly, in most cases, are aiding and abetting the work of these agents. I do not charge these American citizens with being foreign agents, but I do charge them with doing exactly the kind of work that the dictators want done in the United States. These people not only believe that we can save our own skins by shutting our eyes to the fate of other nations, some of them go much further than that. They say that we can and should become the friends and even the partners of the Axis powers. Some of them even suggest that we should imitate the methods of the dictatorships. But Americans never can and never will do that. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. No man can tame a tiger into a kitten by stroking it. There can be no appeasement with ruthlessness. There can be no reasoning with an incendiary bomb.
We know now that a nation can have peace with the Nazis only at the price of total surrender. Next, FDR heaps scorn upon the isolationists and their idea of a negotiated peace with the Nazis. FDR had to address the threat of the America First Committee, which was highly popular with its support from the famous American aviator Charles Lindbergh. He was going to have increasing difficulties because of the popularity, especially in the Midwest, of the America First Committee, and isolationism was never going to decline to the point where anything less than 80% of the American people were opposed to a declaration of war on Germany before Pearl Harbor. Thus, it was essential for Roosevelt to address the issue of the isolationists, which he did frontally, perhaps no greater than in this arsenal of democracy speech. The American appeasers ignore the warning to be found in the fate of Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, and France. They tell you that the Axis powers are going to win anyway, that all of this bloodshed in the world could be saved, that the United States might just as well throw its influence into the scale of a dictated peace and get the best out of it that we can. They call it a negotiated peace. Nonsense. Is it a negotiated peace of a gang of outlaws surrounds your community and on threat of extermination makes you pay tribute to save your own skins? For such a dictated peace would be no peace at all. It would be only another armistice leading to the most gigantic armament race and the most devastating trade wars in all history. And in these contests, the Americas would offer the only real resistance to the Axis power. With all their vaunted efficiency, with all their parade of pious purpose in this war, there are still in their background the concentration camp and the servants of God in chains. The history of recent years proves that the shootings and the chains and the concentration camps are not simply the trenchant tools, but the very altars of modern dictatorships. They may talk of a new order in the world, but what they have in mind is only a revival of the oldest and the worst tyranny. In that, there is no liberty, no religion, no hope. The proposed new order is the very opposite of a United States of Europe or a United States of Asia. It is not a government based upon the consent of the governed. It is not a union of ordinary self-respecting men and women to protect themselves and their freedom and their dignity from oppression. It is an unholy alliance of power and pelf to dominate and to enslave the human race. In this day and age 
when we had a recent president who expressed admiration for authoritarians and dictators, it's worth remembering that not so long ago, less than a hundred years ago, the United States was faced with another dire threat to democracy, but this threat was from overseas, and the leadership of the nation stood tall for the preservation of that democracy, not having forgotten the intrinsic roots of American democracy in American history and American tradition. Why have we so strayed from that realization in the year 2023 that so many Americans would support a recent president who expressed admiration for foreign leaders who were trying to divide the American people just as dictators were trying to do in 1940. This speech is necessary to remember. The British people and their allies today are conducting an active war against this unholy alliance. Our own future security is greatly dependent on the outcome of that fight. Our ability to keep out of war is going to be affected by that outcome. And finally, we have Roosevelt's Arsenal of Democracy plea in this Arsenal of Democracy fireside chat, where Roosevelt argues that if the American people really want to stay out of this war, they must aid the Allies with all munitions short of war, and in no greater and easier and more swift way can they save American democracy itself without war. It's a brilliant masterstroke of rhetoric, explaining that Americans could stay out of war and yet push war farther away from America's shores, far better with the Lend-Lease Act than in any other way. Thinking in terms of today and tomorrow, I make the direct statement to the American people that there is far less chance of the United States getting into war if we do all we can now to support the nations defending themselves against attack by the Axis than if we acquiesce in their defeat, submit tamely to an Axis victory, and wait our turn to be the object of attack in another war later on. If we are to be completely honest with ourselves, we must admit that there is risk in any course we may take. But I deeply believe that the great majority of our people agree that the course that I advocate involves the least risk now and the greatest hope for world peace in the future. The people of Europe who are defending themselves do not ask us to do their fighting. They ask us for the implements of war, the planes, the tanks, the guns, the freighters, which will enable them to fight for their liberty and for our security. Emphatically, we must get these weapons to them, get them to them in sufficient volume and quickly enough so that we and our children 
will be saved the agony and suffering of war, which others have had to endure. Let not the defeatists tell us that it is too late. It will never be earlier. Tomorrow will be later than today. Certain facts are self-evident. In a military sense, Great Britain and the British Empire are today the spearhead of resistance to world conquest, and they are putting up a fight which will live forever in the story of human gallantry. There is no demand for sending an American expeditionary force outside our own borders. There is no intention by any member of your government to send such a force. You can, therefore, nail, nail any talk about sending armies to Europe as deliberate untruth. Our national policy is not directed toward war. Its sole purpose is to keep war away from our country and away from our people. Democracy's fight against world conquest is being greatly aided and must be more greatly aided by the rearmament of the United States and by sending every ounce and every ton of munitions and supplies that we can possibly spare to help the defenders who are in the front lines. And it is no more unneutral for us to do that than it is for Sweden, Russia, and other nations near Germany to send steel and ore and oil and other war materials into Germany every day in the week. I want to make it clear that it is the purpose of the nation to build now with all possible speed every machine, every arsenal, every factory that we need to manufacture our defense material. We have the men, the skill, the wealth, and above all, the will. I am confident that if and when production of consumer or luxury goods in certain industries requires the use of machines and raw materials that are essential for defense purposes, then such production must yield and will gladly yield to our primary and compelling purpose. So I appeal to the owners of plants, to the managers, to the workers, to our own government employees to put every ounce of effort into producing these munitions swiftly and without stint. With this appeal, I give you the pledge that all of us who are officers of your government will devote ourselves to the same wholehearted extent to the great task that lies ahead. As planes and ships and guns and shells are produced, your government, with its defense experts, can then determine how best to use them to defend this hemisphere. The decision as to how much shall be sent abroad and how much shall remain at home must be made on the basis of our overall military necessities. 
We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war. We have furnished the British great material support, and we will furnish far more in the future. There will be no bottlenecks in our determination to aid Great Britain. No dictator, no combination of dictators will weaken that determination by threats of how they will construe that determination. The British have received invaluable military support from the heroic Greek army and from the forces of all the governments in exile. Their strength is growing. It is the strength of men and women who value their freedom more highly than they value their lives. I believe that the Axis powers are not going to win this war. I base that belief on the latest and best of information. We have no excuse for defeatism. We have every good reason for hope. Hope for peace, yes, and hope for the defense of our civilization and for the building of a better civilization in the future. I have the profound conviction that the American people are now determined to put forth a mightier effort than they have ever yet made to increase our production of all the implements of defense to meet the threat to our democratic faith. As President of the United States, I call for that national effort. I call for it in the name of this nation which we love and honor and which we are privileged and proud to serve. I call upon our people with absolute confidence that our common cause will greatly succeed. American democracy's greatest time of testing, before today, that is. The past is always prelude. Thanks for listening. This is Rick Ryman.